doing multilingual learning as something different than the core doesn't necessarily prepare students to navigate the core. And, and that's really, I think, where we need to start is how do we help all educators see that they are educators of multilinguals, whether their license says that or not. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast focused on providing educators with inspiration and strategies to help multilingual learners achieve their highest aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. If you are listening to this episode around the time it was released here in early-ish February, we want to let you know that our team is crisscrossing the country in the coming months to attend conferences, events, and to visit school districts. We hope you'll keep an eye out for us if you are attending conferences this late winter or spring, or if you work with us and we are coming to your school district. In February and March, we'll be at Kabe in Anaheim, TESOL in Tampa, Nabe in New Orleans, and many, many other small regional events in states like Arizona, South Carolina, Colorado, Texas, Kentucky, Florida, Oregon, California, Utah, and more. And that's not to mention all the virtual events and webinars we'll be taking part in. So please come and say hello if you're attending any of these conferences or events. And if you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing and all the great things we're planning for 2024, check out the link in our show notes and the blog post to get in touch. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, we take a deep dive into how professional learning can help create and nurture the skill sets and the mindsets educators need to best serve multilingual learners. We challenge the often idealized assumption that every teacher is a teacher of language and explore ways to make that notion a reality rather than a desired state. We also talk about how effective leadership can be used as a means to overcome issues teachers are facing like fatigue, burnout, and working in silos. And finally, we highlight some ways schools can leverage partnerships with their communities to navigate teacher shortages and build their diverse educator pipeline. A lot is covered in this episode. And to help us address some of these complicated issues, we brought in Dr. Sarah Schmidt de Carranza. Sarah has been an educator in the St. Paul Public School District in Minnesota since 2003. She has served as an EL and Latino consent decree teacher at several schools in her time in St. Paul Public Schools. She achieved National Board Certification in Teaching English as a New Language in 2009. I received my National Board Certification right around the same time in Teaching Spanish. Anyway, and she successfully recertified in 2019. She joined the St. Paul Public Schools Office of Multilingual Learning as a Supervising Administrator in 2019 and has served as the Executive Director of the Office of Multilingual Learning since 2021. She's presented at several national and local conferences and will be presenting at the NABE conference, which I mentioned earlier, coming up in March of 2024, about the collaborative work happening in St. Paul Public Schools. Fun fact, we actually met Sarah at the Minnesota TESOL conference back in the fall, and now she's a guest on Highest Aspirations. Another reason to come visit us at the next conference that you go to and let us know if you're interested in joining me on a future episode. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of hearing from you, we've included a poll to accompany this episode. Take a moment to include your voice in the conversation by taking the poll on Spotify or on our Elevation Educators Facebook group. The question is a really simple one. Does your school district offer high quality professional learning opportunities for educators working with multilingual learners? As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Sarah Schmidt de Carranza. Sarah Schmidt-Dekaranza, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Uh, thank you for inviting me to come on Highest Aspirations. 
Yeah, I don't remember when I invited you. It was a long time ago. And then I was just telling you right before we started to click the record button that uh, I ran into a, a good problem. And that was that I said, oh, we have way too many guests for this season. And so this has been a long time coming. I appreciate your patience. Well, no problem. I'm I'm just really excited for the opportunity to be here. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. Your The topic that this is something I've been excited to talk about with you because we had a really robust conversation um, that I kind of wish I recorded when we first talked. <laughs> um, and it was about professional learning, but it really spanned a whole bunch of different issues. And that's what I kind of liked about it. So we're going to try to like keep this into the uh, or keep this a part of the topic of professional learning. But I have a feeling we're going to get into a bunch of different uh, different topics, which is a good thing. So let me start here. Um, as someone who was a high school teacher for a long time um, and who works in educational technology uh, and and who's seen a lot of professional learning, it, it's a really thorny issue um, in terms of what teachers need, what the research shows, and what's sort of actually happening in schools, which obviously varies from district to district, state to state, et cetera. So let's start here. In your view, what makes this a particularly challenging uh, issue for teachers who work with multilingual learners? Sure. Um, I think the particularly challenging issue off the top of my head is all teachers are teachers who work with multilingual learners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's highly unusual, especially in a large urban district like the one I work in, that there will be a teacher who doesn't have any multilingual learners in any of their classes. Um, they may not have the newest newcomer, but there will be some someone at least one you know in their class who's a who's an english learner and i think what what happens is traditionally multilingual learning instruction has kind of operated in a silo as its own kind of discrete content area mm -hmm. and what research has kind of borne out is that really el is meant to be services to help students navigate the language demands of core content tier one instruction so doing multilingual learning as something different than the core doesn't necessarily prepare students to navigate the core. And, and that's really, I think, where we need to start is how do we help all educators see that they are educators of multilinguals, whether mm -hmm. their license says that or not? Yeah. And that's something that we're going to get into is this, this idea that all teachers are teachers of language, which I think is the idealistic and I think aspirational uh, point of view, not necessarily always the case. Um, and, you know, I, you're already sort of getting into this idea of silos, and we know um, that education doesn't work in silos, particularly multilingual uh, education and preparing students to sort of be able to be um, competent and successful in, in content area classes. And yet it sort of continues to be the case. And so a large part um, of, well, I'm going to ask you about this, but to my knowledge, a large part of sort of breaking down those silos comes in systems and structures and particularly in in with school leaderships. So and we think about school leaders, principals, and maybe even at the district level, assistant superintendents of curriculum instruction, superintendents, et cetera. In in your experience, do they have the knowledge, training, and experience that they need? And I know I'm talking like in very general terms here, but like thinking about your own district or just the work that you've done in other places. Do they have that knowledge or expertise? And if not, or for those of whom who don't, and there are those, what kind of support do they need? Right. I think, unfortunately, there's no like systemic or systematic way to ensure that people have that when they go into leadership. 
that's never been um, kind of one of the standards of leadership that one must demonstrate proficiency on to get, you know, an administrative license. Um, or if it is, it's kind of a general kind of baseline understanding, but not necessarily um, a deep understanding of what that looks like and means for a whole school or a whole district. Like in the in the menu of courses that you have to take to do that, maybe there's a course that you can sort of select and optionally take to kind of get that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Or if that, I mean, right. there might be a special populations course and EL is one week of the 16 semester week. Gotcha. Yep. Um, so I think when we do have people that do have an expertise, it's because they kind of came out of EL maybe as a teacher before they went the route into administration. Um, and because it's not a requirement, it's, you know, those people kind of are, are, are special in that way. Um, and that's why I say that there's nothing systematic or systemic about it. It just kind of is a, a function of who is, you know, available in your leadership teams, you know, across your school districts. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can bring up a bunch of examples, one in particular, and I won't mention the district, but there's a district that we at Elevation work with and we have sort of profiled them and sort of gone to them over and over again about the fact that they are breaking down these silos between um, different departments and the EL department. And the example that we saw was with the math department, the math department and the EL department were working extraordinarily well together in a way that we really hadn't ever seen before. And so we were excited to find out what's happening here. And the system, the school system is just really great. And they, they do have a great support system for their multilingual learners. And they're really trying to do that work at a systemic level. But do you know, do you want to try to guess what the, what the secret sauce was? Uh, my guess is their superintendent used to be an EL teacher or their academic uh, officer used to be an EL teacher. Close. And that could be the case. I can't confirm or deny that. But what I can confirm is that the math department chair for the district was an EL teacher beforehand. So he was bought in and he completely understood. And so he understood the importance of bringing language instruction into the math classes and really vice versa. And so your point there is um, is a good one. And we have to you know, try to break down those silos, but it's hard to do, I think, in systems where maybe that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, schools really have a lot of urgency around all the work they do right now. Um, we hear all the time, you know, student students aren't reading well, you know, like there's a whole, you know, push with science of reading coming about, um, you know, what's going on with students critical thinking with math, you know, and, and it is for all students, not just our students who are, um, you know, multilingual learners. But then, you know, when there's so much urgency, you almost have like urgency fatigue as mm -hmm. a system. Yep. Um, you know, there's only so many things that we can prioritize or so many things that we can put first. And when everything is new and everything's overwhelming, um, it, it can be very difficult, you know, for our teacher staff to navigate as well. You know, how, where do I put these priorities? How do I make these determinations? Because our um, general education staff, same thing. There's no requirement that you have any type of expertise in how to work with English learners. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is dependent on the program you went through and what the people who built that program wanted to prioritize um, in their higher ed, you know, teacher prep program. Right, right. 
Oh boy, there's so many different directions I could go in here. And I'm thinking like this idea of um it it's kind of just random the way that this gets set up and sort of who you have in your school that's kind of had that kind of training and then can be a person maybe to provide, even if it's informal training or mentoring of others. And it really gets to, I think, what what we mentioned earlier, and I hear it all the time, and it's this idea that all teachers are teachers of language, which which I I both love and I have a hard time with that expression because as I mentioned earlier, I think that's the aspiration. That's the idealistic point of view. Uh, and I, I please feel free to like disagree with me. I don't think that's where we are at this point. And I'm not blaming um, anybody for not being there because as you mentioned, this, what'd you call it? Urgency fatigue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, right <laughs> now, and, yeah, right now in particular, there's, you know, eight, thousand things in everybody's plate all at once and they're all urgent they all need to be getting done and so to ask a teacher to go and do something else and something new is is completely overwhelming for them so if we want to get to that reality of all teachers are teachers of language even in in one school like in your experience and districts that you've worked at how can we overcome the challenges associated and i look at them in, in two ways i think there's two kinds of challenges here one is the skill set Right, the ability and the understanding um, that you need in order to work with multilingual learners effectively, and then the mindsets, yeah. um, which is a whole other issue um, of content teachers working with multilingual learners. I still think we have many content teachers who are experts in their field, but feel that they are that their job is to really put out the content. So mm -hmm. I'm asking you a very big question here. Feel free to dissect it in any way, but I'm thinking about the skill set and the mindset. How do we? Those are different approaches, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, like when we think of like, there's a kind of like this, to me, like almost like a, like the three legs, of, like knowledge, skills, and dispositions. Mm -hmm. You know, knowledge is, do I know what the kids need? Skill is, do I know how to give them what they need? And dispositions is, I believe that it's my job to do that well. Love that. I love that analogy. That's great. Um. Well, thank you. And <laughs> um. so I think really... We, we have to approach this in a way where not only are we bringing forth the new knowledge with the teachers, we're supporting them in implementing the skills. Um, I think a lot of times when we do professional development, it's here, go to this two-hour PD, and then some sort of miracle will occur, and everything will be better. Oh, yeah. Yep. We just talked about that an hour ago with <laughs> someone <Yeah>. else. <laughs> yep. Um, and so... That, you know, and we we have, you know, years and years of data to show that that's not the way that we learn. And it's certainly not the way we teach children. You know, we with with children, we kind of have this like gradual release of responsibility. I do. We do. Mm -hmm. You do. So um, something that I and we might get to this in later questions, but something that we've been working on with my department this year, that the one that I lead is how do we really step into this? You do because the you I mean, um, the how we step into the we do to facilitate the you two, because when it's, I do, then you do. Well, um, you know, that's kind of a recipe for something not happening in a sustainable way, uh, because people don't necessarily know how to proceed if they get stuck or they feel overwhelmed. Whereas when they have like dedicated supports in place that are coming out to support you with this, not coming out and making you feel like I'm here to do something else to you. Um, really framing it as, Working with ELs isn't additional to your work. Working with ELs is the work because mm -hmm. ELs are general ed students first. 
And I'm here to help you do that. So you feel um, safe, like, like, you know, your own adult SEL is protected um, that you won't kind of have, like you feel safe to ask questions to me that you feel that you have someone that you can come to when you're trying to like navigate maybe um, a situation where you're having a hard time determining what's an appropriate scaffold for a student. You know, there can be any number of ways where this feels supportive and not that, you know, I'm not not like playing gotcha. It feels that I'm supported in, in the work that I'm trying to roll out. Yeah. And without that, we do peace. You're missing a huge opportunity. And I think you're kind of getting at this or maybe even said it to build confidence in a teacher who, you know, a lack of confidence can can show up in a lot of different ways. Um, and certainly somebody who might not be confident in working with, in this case, multilingual learners, is likely not going to be very innovative and therefore probably not extremely effective in their job through no lack of trying, just that confidence barrier. And it sounds like what you're getting out that we do brings me to this sort of, you know, our key element of, of, of professional learning and the research and everywhere is got to be job embedded. It's got to be related to what um, the teacher is doing. So <clears throat> it is... In what ways does sort of a job embedded approach help content teachers better understand and serve their really increasingly diverse students and make that learning more sticky? And I'll add to that question something, just an element of what you said, which is how does it help them gain confidence? How does it help them to understand that this isn't a gotcha moment, observation, dreaded situation that we've always been through? I mean, how do you do that in a way that? it's it's really helpful and not scary. Maybe it's scary no matter what at first. I don't know. It can be. And I think this is where, as a leader, you have to build your team. Yeah. Um, I tell my team, the team of mine that goes out and works with schools, my vision for those folks is that when they go out to schools and meet with their teams, I want those teams to be so happy to see them that you would have thought they won the lottery. Um, because they have such a supportive and collegial relationship with them. Um, they are never the ones who are going to deliver any type of bad news to anybody. That comes from me. You know, as the leader, that's my job. Um, so when they come out and say, hey, you know, can I support you? They've already, you know, established these relationships with the schools, uh, um, the leadership teams, the principals, the EL teams that they work with. And then they're kind of bringing in more staff. As we go, my team is kind of on call, you know, for professional development. We have principals um, that we go out and they arrange uh, for us to do PD at a staff meeting, you know, kind of co-teaching 101. We've got some extension activities and we we also say, you know, OK, now that you finish kind of the level setting 101, um, sign up for some time for one of us to come out and work with you so that, you know, we can help facilitate some of this common planning as you're navigating a new co-teaching relationship, or maybe just you're new to co-teaching, or maybe you're a brand new teacher. Um, and and you're navigating all of these things through newness, which is a lot to navigate. Sure. Yeah. And it, let's let's go into some of the work you're doing. This will go one of my last questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it in now because I know that you're you're I don't know if you've piloted or you're still piloting. As I said last time we talked was a while ago, and you were piloting a program with TOSA's um teachers on special assignment. Um, teachers and administrators to overcome some of the challenges we're discussing. And it sounds like you were just kind of getting into that, but let's let's dive into that because you're doing some really interesting work. And what I would really like to get out of this is if 
if you're if you think about the people who are listening as you sort of answer this question talk about what you're doing think about what they can take out of it what's replicable for them what's something what's a step that they can take i always tell people this podcast highest aspirations is not professional development but it's meant to inspire so like as you as you think about that think about you know what next step maybe somebody could take if they're listening to what you're doing sure um, so yes, you're right. We're doing something totally new this year with, um, the EL teachers in our district. So, um, the last few years funded through some ARP dollars, all elementary schools have access to this job embedded professional development, which is some of the sessions are more PLC teacher directed. Um, and a lot of them were more district directed. And, um, last year, our EL teachers attended those with their co-teaching teams and in some schools, they said, yep, this has been great. This has really helped us, you know, kind of mesh well together as a team. In some buildings, they've said, you know, it. Uh, the, the, the content here really is focused on the classroom teacher, and I'm having a hard time navigating mm-hmm. what it means for me or how I enter into this. Um, so this year, what we're doing is once a month, I have divided all of our elementary uh, schools into four cohorts. And once a month, um, each cohort meets with my team and they have like a full day of professional learning. And we're focused on, um, we're really focusing our EL supports in uh, the writing domain. Um, Why Why is that? The data show that there's... Yes. Um, The writing domain, because, you know, when you learn uh, or acquire another language, the productive domains of uh, speaking and writing come later than the receptive mm-hmm. domains of reading and listening. And that's just kind of how languages work. Yeah, um, st- I'm still working on that in both English and Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And so knowing that, um, looking at our, we're a WIDA state. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, our WIDA data shows kind of consistently that writing is the area where students will be, you know, like discrepant from their other, you know, three domains. So I said, well, if they're, we're, we're seeing here that this is the area where students are needing the most um, support, then let's support them there. Um, so our district is kind of in the midst of a lot of kind of curricular adoptions for elementary as well this year, uh, because there was a new K-12 math adoption in our district. So every single person who does math is doing something new this year. Yep. Um, new guidance around how we do literacy. So it's more aligned to science of reading. Urgency so fatigue. Uh-huh. Urgency. <laughs> and then there's also been an adoption of a new writing curriculum that has kind of had a soft launch this year. So a lot of the schools aren't really doing the writing curriculum yet, or they might be implementing certain parts of it this year um, with the expectation that next year will be full implementation. Gotcha. But what I did is I said, well, we still have kind of the ARP structures in place for me to do this. So I want to take advantage of that. Good for you for doing well, that, by the way. A lot of those that that those funding that funding I can't even speak is n- not being used. Uh, sometimes not being used at all, and in many way, in many situations, not being used effectively. So, just shout out to to you for doing that. That's what we're thank finding. You. Thank you. Um. So so what we did is um I purchased kind of the um curriculum guide for each of our EL teachers. There's like a K two guide and a three five guide. So everybody got one like teacher edition guide. Um, you know, of whatever grade band was the one that was going to make the most sense for them. And everyone will also get the online access, which would include access to the other guide. And then just a tremendous amount of resources that come with this particular curriculum. I'm not sure if I can say it, the name you of can it. Say it. Step up to writing 
is Great. the um, one that our district has gone with. So, um, you know, between my department and the our um, Office of Teaching and Learning, we've made sure that all of our teachers have access to that. And then I've sat down with the EL teachers and I've said, I want you to have this teacher guide as a resource, but I want, I'm going to say right now, your job is not to implement this as is on the page here. That is your co-teacher's job because they're in charge of the literacy block. However, there are so many teacher moves that you need to be making as the EL professional here to help the students navigate the demands. So we have actually had our EL teachers digging into this for several months already. And the general ed teachers just got their first training like a week ago. So, and I've, and I've said to the EL teachers, you're leading the charge here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and I think oftentimes they feel that they get access to things as an afterthought or, yep. oh, yep. oh, good heavens. We forgot to give the EL teachers. Um, and I said, when was the last time this happened where you got it ahead yeah. of your colleagues? Like, you know, it's, it's unusual, right? And um, they, have a, they have a seat at the table right away, which is normally something that, in my experience, has to be sort of clamored for and rarely is given. But you've designed a situation where they are immediately they're at the head of the table, realistically. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, and and then I said, like, here are the resources that are going to help you enter in with the language demands. But I, I need you to have access to what the classroom teacher is doing. So that it's very clear that you know exactly what lessons are being taught, you know what the language demands are. Um, cause again, you know, it, depending on the level of common planning time they get, you know, they might co have common planning time every day together. They might have it a couple times a week. It really depends on the school and how they've, um, scheduled their time this way. Everybody can be singing out of that same song sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we've had um, time where the EL teachers work together with their school-based teams and we say, okay, we're going to practice doing some lesson planning based on like kind of the the lessons in the book. So here's what the book lesson looks like. How do we create our supplementary language uh, development to accompany that during the co-teaching setting? And then also um, some additional integrated small group time uh, for that. So that's really been my main focus this year is with our elementary EL teachers. Um, and that's a function of we have significantly more EL students at our elementary sites and our secondary sites. Yep, not uncommon. And, and we, okay, yep. And then um, we have um, a number of, of students across our system who um, really are experienced multilinguals. I mean, they are, they are in the secondary grades and still haven't exited EL services. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking at how can we provide these like really top-notch supports so that they really are operating at these like really high levels of academic language. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I, I, I think you provided a really nice outline. I think there's a lot of key takeaways there. If I were to provide my key takeaway for this, um, and you stressed it, but there's a lot more here, obviously, and it mine's, I guess, very sort of general, but boy, if you can give, um, EL teachers a seat at the table right away. And, you know, you create a system where that uh, collaboration is, um, is not only expected, but also appreciated and, um, and it's cycled through. It's not just a one-off. It's something that's happening. You know, we know it's continuing and then you have sort of whatever resource you're using to kind of anchor you to, which is key as well. And then, you know, using that, um, the ARP funding to do things like this, I think is, is I, I, and I know I mentioned it before, but like, 
the there's opportunities and those opportunities pretty soon are going to run out. And um, so if you're listening to this, thinking about where am I going to get funding? That's another conversation. We've done podcasts on that as well, but that's important. Yep. Yeah. And, and um, but I completely agree with you. I think kind of one of my main um, kind of missions this year and like my vision as a, as a, you know, leader of a large district multilingual learning program is we need to make sure that everybody is working together from the outset. Mm -hmm. It is so much easier to operate in that when that was just how it was always supposed to be, rather than to try to enter it as an afterthought when people already have their curriculum guides, their scope and sequence, how things are supposed to go. And then the EL teacher feels like they have to, you know, justify or argue why they should be able to, to yeah. service their students when that's really a civil right. Yeah. Or retrofit everything after, you know, go back and, you know, you're, you're, you've already designed everything and now you get to go back and fit, you know, a square peg into a circle. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, but it requires planning and it requires leadership. And you've mentioned that more than once. One thing that you said earlier that I didn't sort of emphasize, I think is really important is this idea of having a team that is, that th whose job it is to support and then having a leader who's part of their job is to make hard decisions and sometimes to relay news that, you know, might not be great to people on um, that team. You need to be putting sort of, I don't know, it's maybe not the right way to describe, but you need to be putting money in the bank with that team, right? You need to really, if you, especially when it comes time to make a deposit or it takes some money out, which you definitely need to do at some point. Um, Okay, so I want to I want to sort of transition into um, the fact that it you know you've laid out all of these great ideas and then you kind of made it practical with what you're doing at your district. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, number one, to learn how difficult it has been for you to attract the teachers, the highly qualified teachers that you need in your district. That's, I guess, the simple part of it. And then the other part of it is, and and I know that this has not been easy for many districts. How do you, because it's like just a logistical question of like, I, I, where I am, it's impossible to get subs. I mean, it's so hard to find them now. Um, and how do you go about creating these professional learning experiences when number one, you maybe not, have the staff that you need or that you'd like like to have and two um you don't have the coverage to take them out of class how have you overcome those challenges maybe the first hasn't been a challenge for you and if it hasn't i'd love to hear you know what what your what your solution is to that problem sure um yeah absolutely so attracting and retaining teachers you know yes it's def it's definitely different now than it was even a few years ago um but i will say uh I really have been very blessed that a large number of our teachers are kind of career teachers in our district. Um, and as you know, our, our contract for, with our uh, Federation of Educators, um, it's kind of tied to enrollment. So we have this um, 52 to one ratio and then we figure out what the number is. So if you're, you know, if your ratio is, if you've got 104 students, you know, you divide that by 52 and that's your number of teachers, right? Um, now that has been more difficult 
kind of since we've been coming back from the pandemic as we've had to hire additional teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I, you know, what I'm hearing from some of the uh, folks in some of our local universities is they just have many fewer people coming through their programming than even five, six years ago. Um, so looking for new teachers can be challenging. Something that I am really working hard on is um, I employ about 90 bilingual educational assistants um, in our system that speak, they, they represent the languages of our students. Sarah, real Some quick, I just went back and forth one sec. How many students are, uh, how many total students in your district? How many total multilingual learners or, or English learners in your district? Uh, about 9,000. Okay. Just to give people a sense. Sorry. Cause you mentioned 90. Yeah, and that's and about a third people... of our total. Got it. Perfect. Thank you very much. I should have asked you that at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so we got about 9,000. That's about a third of our total population. Great. Um, so our bilingual educational assistants represent, you know, a number of different languages. And a lot of these folks are coming from, um, you know, a lot of these folks are first generation immigrants themselves. And a lot of them have educational experiences in their countries that then they came to the U.S. and they've um, gotten hired as educational assistants. But they found kind of the procedure to get a teaching license and the bureaucracy surrounding that to be kind of a very opaque process. Um, so That's a lot of them. You know, have, so, so do I. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I um so. Something that is really important to me is um, we have also bilingual educational assistant professional development where they come um, once a quarter. And at the end of every session, I um, have a local university come in and kind of give a presentation about, you know, what programs they have, how to apply. Um, and then I'm going to have someone from our licensing board come in later this uh, year and meet with people who were credentialed teachers in their home countries to see what transfers and what coursework or other work may they still need to do to have that license become active in our state. Uh, because I think there's a lot of people who are natural born educators right now that they're just not active. Like they're not as operationalized as they could be mm -hmm. because of not having a clear understanding of an opaque bureaucracy. You, uh, two things you just mentioned, I think are huge and honestly, I mean, it depends on where you are and your proximity to these kinds of institutions, but partnership with a local university is is huge. That's a win-win. I mean, the, there is very rarely a case when a local university isn't going to come in to provide some information on the services that they're offering because it's a win for them and it's a win for the school. And then one thing that I really haven't heard, and I'm surprised they haven't, is you mentioned somebody coming in to talk about the licensing, like the requirements. From Is that from the Department of Education or how does that work? Yeah. Um. So... the a few years back, our Department of Education kind of um, divided into two. So the Department of Education is more like your state standards and how to implement them, sure. that sort of thing. And then the other half is the Professional Educator Standards. Well, the acronym is PELSB. Everybody calls it PELSB. Okay. Um, and so PELSB is kind of the, the entity that um, works with not only accrediting the colleges so that they're able to offer K-12 licenses, yep. but then also works with... Um, people, you know, getting their licenses. And that includes people coming from out of state. Uh, my state is one of the few states that actually has a standalone ESL teacher license. So when people are coming from other states, their ESL license often doesn't transfer because um, it may be um, an endorsement on an existing license, but not as uh, much standalone linguistics work as right. is required in our state. Um, and then looking at 
people coming in from out of country and looking at, you know, what program did they have once they have their transcript evaluated by, you know, an evaluation service where they're able to say this is equivalent to this degree with this type of, um, you know, focus, um, then our standards and licensing board will say, okay, based on this, you actually have a license now, or based on this, you would need to take classes that meet these 10 standards, you know, and then that institution could then recommend you for a license. Um, so I've, you know, seen this work a few different ways where people have, um, a, they're a lot closer to a teaching license than they ever thought. Uh, you know, once they actually were able to get someone to sit down with them and kind of help them navigate the process. And I don't navigate that process because it's also too opaque for me. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> but I have, um, um, you know, I got somebody's name at the standards and licensing board and she has now become my go-to person. And so now I will send emails all the time like, hi, Emily, um, I've got another person for you. Um, you know, I'm copying them on the email and they're going to send you their um, documents from the transcript evaluation service. We can't wait to hear back. You yeah. Know? And then um, and then based on that, you know, there's been a couple of times where she said, oh, well, this person would actually qualify for um, an ESL teaching license right now. And I'll say, great. Uh, when do you want to start as a teacher? You know, and and because it's important to me that we have um, folks in front of our kids that represent our kids as languages and cultures, too. For sure. I mean, well, first of all, everybody needs to find an Emily uh, and shout out to Emily. I, she's doing really important work. Um, she's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like I mean, I, I, if you can have a contact at a place like that, that is, you know, pleasant and helpful. Um, that's great. And those people are there. You just need to find them, which really leads me to mm -hmm. this idea of like you're emphasizing partnerships. Um, we talked about silos earlier. Those silos don't just exist in the school. They exist in the entire community. There are resources at our disposal. And I really um, I think it's admirable that you're not only breaking down silos in your school, but you're thinking about ways bureaucracy is always going to be there, especially with teaching and the kinds of, you know, any kind of public service jobs going to be there. Um, I have my my opinions of whether or not it should be there and what we should cut. But my opinions don't really matter because they're going to exist. What can you put in place to help sort of cut through that bureaucracy? In this case, it's Emily. Um, in many other cases, it's it's other people and other organizations. Um, and you think about, I mean, you just said like all of these people who who were surprised or had no idea that they could get a teaching license, you're putting them to work in a job that they probably feel really passionate about. You're bringing people into a system that reflect the population of students that you have. Um, and you're setting everybody up for success. It's a huge, huge win. And it doesn't happen in a silo. It doesn't happen in a silo in a school and it doesn't happen in a silo in a community. Um, to me, those are like, I think about these, I'm always thinking about what, if you're listening to this, what steps can you take? I mean, that's, you know, you have to, I guess, be close enough to a university that you can make that connection, but you can always reach out to your, whatever your sort of credentialing department is and, and find out. Um, that's amazing. Great work. And I'm, you know, I work in our capital city and the professional standards licensing boards also in the capital city. So I have the benefit too. If, if, you know, if I was to reach out and not get an answer, you know, before I met Emily, for example, I could just drive over there and say, Oh, you, you know, I'm, can <laughs> someone help me? Well, that's okay. I'll sit here and read my book while I wait. It's fine. Yeah. I can't, I used to do that. And I started teaching a long time ago, I think before, you know, there was a lot of easier communication, but it, it was in, I was in Massachusetts and let's just say it just wasn't easy to get 
answers. And uh, the Department of Education in Massachusetts, about 40 minutes from where I live, lived. And um, I used to go there more often than I would like in order to make sure I got answers. But when I went, I got the answers. Um, hopefully that's not the case anymore. But uh, but you got to be persistent. And then what you find out, or at least what I found out, is that you know once you sort of establish relationships with these folks, people look at it too much like it's it's a bureaucracy or it's like going to get your driver's license. It's not. These people are in education. They're there for a reason. They're there to do good work. And I think you just got to find the people who are your who are going to advocate for you. And there's more of them than we think. So that's great. Well, and, and I say to people, I'm like, yes, you have to have a license to teach, but like, it's not like a fishing license where I can go to the gas station and buy one. I mean, it, it's like difficult to get a teaching license. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I think like sometimes when I hear people, we'll just hire someone with that license. Okay. You know, do you know anyone with that license? Um, I, I would love to know. Particularly if you're, if you're finding, if you're trying to find the exact types of people that we're talking about, people who reflect the communities of the students we serve, those people have in many cases, more experience than 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 many others do, but they just don't have, they don't understand how to navigate the system. And as I've said, I think three times now, neither do I. So that's not surprising. We just need to give people um, the tools they need to be able to access it. Yeah, I think, um, it, and I think that's exactly it. You know, this is not about Sarah. This is about the system. And, you know, we see that this system is gatekeeping certain people and so, okay, well, what, what's the key to the gate? Mm -hmm. yep. and, and if I can help like, navigate that, then that's what I'll do. And that, that'll be my contribution. You know, like it doesn't have to be that I do everything. I, I need to find the right people to do the right parts of the jobs. Like that's, I think that's like kind of what, what the leadership piece of it. Yeah. Yep. For sure. And I think, that's another sort of thread of this conversation is the importance of leadership and what it, the things that a leader needs to do in order to, you know, I feel like the theme here, one of the themes is breaking down the silos and you need leadership to do that. Um, people that are working and are suffering from urgency fatigue and everything else that teachers are dealing with right now um, are, are really not able to break those silos. They're stuck in them. And so you need advocates and leaders to do that. Um, and I think, you know, and I'll say with credit to my colleagues and my direct boss, I am in a position where if I go to my boss and say, hey, I'm feeling like I'm not getting any traction with this person or this department or this entity, you know, my boss is like, well, we're going to change that right now. That will not be happening. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I first started in my role that, you know, I um, kind of connected with our kind of uh, director of uh, teaching and learning. And I kind of went to him and I said, I, you know, we got to talk. I need to make sure that like ML perspectives are all over the place when we're doing curricular uh, adoptions, when we're doing these conversations and, and this is, this has got to happen. And he said, you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, wh what do we need? Like, who do I need to put on the meeting invites? Who, who do I add where? And I said, well, you know, cause I kind of like stormed into his office thinking it was going to be like a long meeting. And then he agreed with me right away. So I was like, I'll send you the names. Have a good day. <laughs> kind of anticlimactic, actually. Yeah, yeah, really you're like, all hyped up to get to, up for it too. to be in a battle and there's no battle needed. And then you have to walk away and do something yeah. with all that pent up energy. Um, well, Sarah, I, I have to say, um, as we kind of wind down here, uh, so my colleague, Dennis Ocampo, is the one who introduced me um, to you and the work you're doing. I'm glad he did. So um, I, I've already shouted out Emily. I'm going to shout out Dennis as well. Uh, he's a great colleague and I appreciate him bringing us together. 
So I learned about your work through him. But if I'm listening to this podcast episode right now and I want to learn more about you or from you or the work you're doing, is there a is there a place that folks can go or or reach out? Um, yeah, uh, my email address, you know, is sarah.schmidt at spps.org. Um, I work for the St. Paul Public Schools in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, the St. Paul Public Schools website kind of highlights a lot of the great uh, work that's going on across our system uh, with um, tier one, with immersion dual language education, with multilingual learners. You know, there's a lot, lot to celebrate here. Great. And uh, we'll we'll link to both of those, both the email address and um, the website to the uh, to the district. And um, really appreciate you sharing that information. It takes a community here, and um, it's nice when folks kind of reach out to our guests and establish different relationships there. And then you end up seeing each other at conferences and different things like that, which is amazing. This community is really vibrant and special. The last question I have uh, for you, speaking of community, is we try to um, sort of create a nice library of books that folks are reading. So I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody who's come on the podcast. And that is, is there a book or a film or really any other resource that's had an important influence on you, either personally or professionally that you'd recommend to anybody who's listening? Sure. Um, I would say like personally, one of my favorite books is the four agreements. Um, oh, yeah. I love that one. And there is another one. Uh, it's got, you know, a bad word in the title, but basically it's, um, oh gosh, how does the title go? The subtle art of not giving a F. Yeah. Um, and that one I've really liked just cause it kind of takes a look about like how you can like turn failure on its head and like into a learning experience rather than something to be avoided at all costs, which, you know, was an interesting take on that. So that's, those are a couple, um, that that's a couple personal ones. Um, and then I love mysteries, like to read something for fun. Mysteries are my jam. Yeah. So there's a new series I started, uh, um, by Mia Manansala. Uh, it's a cozy mystery. So if you're familiar with cozy mysteries, basically they're like very wholesome and innocent, except for, you know, someone does die. So that part's not great, but think of like murder. She wrote murder. She wrote would be a great example of a cozy. Um, this one is about, um, a Filipino family in Illinois. And the first one of the series is called Arsenic and Adobo by Mia Manansala. And then um, there is a great book that I've been doing a book study on with my team this year called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't really even dig into uh, experienced multilinguals and and some of the stuff we're doing in St. Paul for that and the stuff that we're like building towards. But um, this book by Tan Nguyen and Beth Skelton is... uh, a fantastic one that was um not too i mean this is not an old book it's fairly recently published no it's 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 fairly new and i was just looking behind me because i was looking for my copy of it ton and beth have both been on the podcast to talk about that book and other things they're also part of our impact conference they're friends and and valued members of the community and that book is um is great and what they've done is they've sort of reframed we talk about asset-based approach all the time experience multilingual multilinguals instead of long-term English learners. And just that change of a title goes a long way. Uh, we talked a lot about that in our episode. They're, they're wonderful. Perfect. Yeah. Um, well, and, and Tan actually was the keynote at our uh, Minnesota EL teacher conference earlier um, this school year. And oh, so great. being, able, yeah, being able to meet him in the flesh and what an engaging presenter. He even presented after lunch, which 
not a great time to be a presenter. And he just, um, his energy on the stage. I mean, every, the whole room was just captivated. Yeah, for sure. He's, he's pretty special. He's, he's been, I don't think I've ever, in fact, he's, he may be listening to this. He has his own podcast. We both listen to each other's and he, uh, he, we've never met in person. It's, we've been we've been probably collaborating now for at least since the podcast started since 2018, and I don't think I've ever met him in person. But he's he's wonderful. We've collaborated with him a lot, and I cannot recommend that book enough. And Beth also um, does really great work, and they do great work together. And thanks, by the way, for recommending just kind of wind down books. If mystery's not your thing, that's fine. Find something else. So you can just there's a lot going on, and I think finding something that we can do to kind of prioritize our mental health and just relax a little bit. Um, is important. I have read the four agreements. That's a great one as well. So um, I think we got like four for the price of one with with those recommendations. So really appreciate that. I to make sure you get your money's worth. A hundred percent. Well, Sarah, again, um, thanks to Dennis for for introducing us, and um, thank you so much for providing just lots of great information about um, you know breaking down styles, what it means to be a leader, what job and better professional development really looks like. Uh, I think we got into a lot. We just scraped the surface of it. So hopefully, folks will kind of take the next step to dive into a piece of this that that is most interesting um, to them. But thanks so much for your time. Thanks for being patient and um, look forward to continued collaboration. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.